Hello everybody and welcome back. This is Death by Ignorance, episode 12, Just a Little Prick. First, an apology for any of you that downloaded this podcast so you could hear me tear into Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, former United States Attorney General and the first ever leprechaun to join the Republican Party. I'm sorry for letting you down. But let me assure you, the nasty little guy is going to get his own episode one of these days. Now, the target of today's discussion is much sharper, otherwise just as useless as Sessions, though. It's acupuncture. But not just acupuncture, we'll also be touching on a handful of other equally indefensible practices in traditional Chinese medicine. I'll tell you all about the practices of acupuncture, moxibustion, cupping, and along with some variations of each. We'll get to know what the proponents of these dodgy treatments claim, and we'll compare it with the scientific evidence and what that actually shows. I'll scare you half to death with some of the complications these strange bodily intrusions can lead to. And with that out of the way, we're going to try to answer some of the hard questions about why people are seeking out this malarkey. Why is it more popular today than ever? And why the hell are health insurance companies actually paying for it sometimes? When I was a couple of years into my surgery residency, a marathon educational process that lasted six years, and that was after four years of college and four years of medical school, I went to see an acupuncturist. I'm a little embarrassed to say that out loud, knowing what I know now, but back then, I was facing a challenge that at the time felt pretty insurmountable. I was running out of ideas for how I could stop smoking cigarettes. My residency was both the most exciting and the most stressful experience in my life. For most of those six years, I worked seven days a week and was expected to take call, which meant staying at the hospital overnight every second or third day. Most of that call was in the trauma room which all but guaranteed that I'd be up working all night long, running from trauma room to operating room to ICU in an endless loop, only slowing down when I got to sit in the CT scanner with a critically wounded trauma patient every once in a while, otherwise it was always on the go. My security blanket back then was a plastic cup of rotten coffee and a merit menthol cigarette. I would dose up on my caffeine and nicotine in an out-of-the-way spot behind the emergency room. And this was well before the days that uh, cigarette smoking around a hospital became a class one felony punishable by life in prison. But anyway, I'd started stealing and smoking my dad's fags at a very young age. It seemed like everyone in England was a smoker back then. To the best of my recollection, I only brought with me two things of value when I moved to America. The first was a small stack of very important albums that I would never be parted from, and the second was my smoking habit. I remained an on-again, off-again smoker through university, internship, and well into my residency. 
I had quit several times, once when I got into medical school and once when I eventually got my sweetheart to marry me. It was part of the deal. But I kept starting back again. By this time, I was starting to feel really uncomfortable with the habit. You see, I was already a doctor and I took my responsibility to my patients very seriously. I knew all the reasons not to smoke and would spend hours trying to convince my patients that they were killing themselves and that they just had to quit. And there I was, smelling a bit like an ashtray and craving a cigarette. I was desperate to put it behind me once and for all, and I would quit every damn morning after getting through another night on trauma call. But then two or three nights later on call again, I'd cave and I'd bum a smoke from one of the other residents, from a nurse, or on a couple of profoundly shameful occasions from a patient in the ER parking lot. I don't say this as an excuse, but a lot of young doctors smoked back in those days, as did a lot of older doctors. Then I overheard someone talking about acupuncture. It was actually a senior thoracic surgeon, a lung cancer specialist, and a two-pack-a-day unfiltered cigarette smoker. He ended up dying of lung cancer, unsurprisingly, about five years later. But on the night in question in the surgeon's lounge, he was telling another surgeon about how his wife had been able to quit the nasty habit after several visits to a local acupuncture clinic. I'm pretty sure that that was the only such clinic in town back then. I, I have no way of knowing. It wasn't that big of a city, and we were in the heart of the tobacco belt. So smoking cessation didn't seem to be a major priority back then, I guess. I was at the point where anything was worth a try. I found this clinic, and I made an appointment. It's worth mentioning that during more than 10 years of higher education, I'd never attended a single lecture on acupuncture or any traditional Chinese medicine for that matter. I knew nothing about it except for having a vague idea that it involved getting stuck with needles and it was a bit mysterious. But I knew a lot about Western medicine and I was learning more and more every day. When I walked in for my appointment, I had a very open mind and I was genuinely excited about finding something new to try to stop the insanity of my smoking. The dude was a caricature of himself. I wish I could remember his name, though I'll never forget the look of him. He was wearing what looked like a house coat with a high collar and puffy sleeves. Uh, he was skeleton thin and mostly bald, but he did have a sad gray ponytail. His exam room was clean and fairly modern, and there were no jars of pickled body parts on the shelves, thank goodness. Behind the examination table was a gaudy watercolor painting of the Great Wall of China that looked absolutely identical to the one on display at the local chicken wings and fried rice budget Chinese takeout across from our ER. The other wall had a life-size anatomic drawing of an improbably asexual Chinese person covered from head to foot with lines and dots and what looked like Middle-earth runes but were probably Mandarin words. My doctor was a tremendous chap who made up for his rather sketchy English with infectious good humor and bouncy earnestness. 
After explaining my situation and describing all my failed attempts to toss the smokes, I asked what could possibly be done for me. I was more than ready to be punctured at that point. What happened next was life-changing, and in a most unexpected way. My new chum sat down and pulled his chair up until our knees were almost touching. And without the faintest hint of self-consciousness or irony, he launched into an explanation of the life force, chi, the meridian lines, how he picked his acupuncture points, and that it was all a sham. I was taken back, and I must have looked it because he paused, smiled, and explained. He told me that he loved his job, and he loved to help his patients, which was pretty self-evident. And he went on to explain that not everybody could be his patient. The needles are a talisman. The treatments are theater. What he was giving to his patients were comfort, encouragement, and hope. He told me that acupuncture was basically a placebo. He surmised correctly, as it happens, that I was a skeptical man, or was becoming one at least, and that before long, I'd learn the truth about things like acupuncture. He didn't think I would make a good patient. And as I was shaking his hand, he told me that I didn't need him to stop my smoking. I needed me to stop my smoking. And that he was certain that I would. I did quit smoking. Not there and then, but eventually. And as improbable as regular listeners may find it, I really do believe that there may be an occasional role for some alternative medicine interventions, but only as adjuncts to evidence-based medical treatment, and only if they're provided by honest and humble practitioners whose first principle is to cause no harm. Sadly, though, this is seldom the case. The comments I'm about to make are not based on what I was told by my needle-wielding pal from 30 years ago. Everything that I'm going to be talking about has its basis in scientific evidence and not in hearsay. Acupuncture and all its wild and crazy variations is pseudoscience. It provides no more benefit to a patient than does a placebo. It's make-believe. There's much argument about the true origin of acupuncture. Most of it sounds like pure conjecture to me, and I can't really imagine what possible good it would do us to know. But some folks think it all got cracking in China about a hundred years before the common era began. It was described in some detail in a book with the worst book title in history, the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. I don't know if that is meant as a racial slur or if the emperor in question had liver failure, but the nickname doesn't work either way. There is some evidence, or they call it evidence anyway, including the archaeological discovery of some needles from about that time. Now, they're calling them acupuncture needles, but they might just be ordinary needles. I have no idea how you would tell the difference. There were also a couple of shout-outs in books that were written at about the same time. 
Then there are those slightly more imaginative investigators who are pretty sure that the tattoos that were found on the mummified remains of 5,000-year-old Otzi the Iceman are conclusive evidence that he'd been getting acupuncture for a bad back. I've looked at pictures of these tattoos and they look kind of like the sun demon on Henry Rollins' back, but I don't know. Maybe all 5,000-year-old acupuncture scars look like Henry Rollins' back. Some other archaeological types uh, desperate for attention, probably, are convinced that it all got started 12,000 years ago in the Neolithic era. They overcome the troubling metal hadn't been invented yet argument by suggesting that they used pointy stones instead of needles to do the acupuncture. It makes me want to write a paper claiming that acupuncture was really invented 125 million years ago when a stegosaurus accidentally whacked his tail into the head of a brachyceratops and the brachyceratops's headache got better. It's almost as believable anyway. Acupuncture has been around for at least a couple of thousand years. On that, we can agree. And it works like this, supposedly. The body contains something called chi. It's also known as the life force. It's conveniently invisible and it can't be measured. It's pumped around your body in a complex network of invisible tubes called meridians. The meridians carry the chi from the Zhang Fu organs, like Kung Fu fighting but not, uh, to more superficial tissues like the skin, the bones, the joints, and I'm guessing here, but the nipples, maybe? Okay, so pay attention here. When you get ill, it's because the harmonies of your chi, your yin and your yang and your zhui, are imbalanced. And the only way you can get them back where they belong is by jabbing a handful of needles into the correct acupuncture points. But to know which the right points are, you need to examine the shape and color of your tongue, the strength of your pulse, the smell of your breath, the quality of your breathing, and the sound of your voice. Don't be surprised if your acupuncturist wants to palpate your R-she points while he's sniffing your armpits. You keeping up here? I hope so, because it gets strange now. Once the needle is poked in, it has to be spun around flicked from side to side, and moved up and down. And if after that's done, and you aren't getting a sensation of numbness, tingling, or distension called the de chi sensation, not making it up, de chi, but anyway, if you're not feeling de chi, then the needle is presumed to be in the wrong place or not deep enough. After moving it to another place, they might try maneuvers called plucking, trembling, or shaking until you get the chi. Do I have to keep going with all the instructions or are you getting the idea? It's all just silly nonsense. There is no chi. There are no meridians. The needles aren't doing a damn thing. At least until they hit a blood vessel, a nerve, or an organ that is. And we'll get into that mess in due course. Some have tried to attribute 
physiologic benefits to the practice, like the pain of needle stabbing causes a release of endorphins. Well, that might well be the case. The research definitively shows, though, that the effect is clinically irrelevant, as in too trivial to make any difference. Throwing in a few medical words doesn't suddenly make it believable. Appendicitis is caused most commonly by a small pellet of dehydrated stool that gets stuck in the hollow part of the appendix. This blockage prevents mucus and other secretions from draining out of the appendix into the colon. And with that blockage in place, the mucus that gets trapped quickly becomes overgrown with bacteria from the colon. The little organ swells and becomes very inflamed. It hurts. Sometimes it actually bursts, squirting a mixture of pus and stool out into the abdominal cavity. The treatment in most, but not all cases, is to remove the appendix. We do that in surgery. There are some patients who might be too sick for surgery, and they can be managed with antibiotics in an attempt to avoid or at least delay the operation. But most of the time, we just surgically remove it, either using a laparoscope or through a small incision on the abdominal wall. Most people get better quickly and have an uneventful post-operative recovery. Surgery is the treatment for appendicitis. Surgeons have not tried removing a kidney or amputating a foot or incising a tonsil to try treating their patients with appendicitis to see if maybe they have worked better than the surgery does. When a treatment works, we don't keep changing the procedure without some compelling scientific evidence that there may be a better approach. So when you see a form of treatment that comes in dozens of different varieties, be suspicious. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. Here are a few of the variations on a theme offered by today's acupuncturists. Acupressure, or just poking the magic points with a finger instead of a needle. Tui-na. This one involves massaging your chi uh, to get it back in balance instead of sticking a needle in it. Electroacupuncture is kind of what it sounds like. You still get the needles, but then they hook them up to electrodes and shock you with them. Another nice one, fire needle acupuncture. This is acupuncture with red-hot needles. And in this barbaric practice, the acupuncturist has to jab the red-hot needle into you quickly, uh, presumably because you wouldn't sit there long enough for him to put it in slowly. Sonopuncture, which is performed with a modified ultrasonic jewelry cleaning machine or with tuning forks if you don't have one of those, is like acupuncture with little bits of sound instead of needles. Then there's auriculopuncture, which I can only presume was invented by a really lazy acupuncturist who didn't like the idea of walking between different areas of the body. And this just involves stabbing all of your needles into your ear. <laughs> then, then there are some uh, self-explanatory ones, a scalp 
acupuncture and hand acupuncture. Uh, some desperate acu-quacks came up with cosmetic acupuncture, which is actually just sticking needles in the face to get rid of wrinkles, which would actually work, by the way, if you punctured, say, the labial artery, as your face turns purple and swells to the size of a basketball from the hematoma, your wrinkles would in fact disappear, right before you die of blood loss or an airway obstruction. There is such a thing as veterinary acupuncture. How does a hamster tell you when he's feeling de chi? One of my favorites is bee venom acupuncture. Yep. They dip the spikes into bee venom before they go into your body parts. How come nobody has come up with electro-bee venom acupuncture? Remember, I thought of it first. There's one form of acupuncture that does appear to show promise. You'll never guess what it is. They do the regular acupuncture, and at the same time, they inject you with a regular dose of an approved medication. And you'll never believe what happens. It's unbelievably exciting. The injected medicine works exactly like it does without the acupuncture. It's a miracle. Praise be. And just in case you thought that was it for entertaining alternatives to just plain boring acupuncture, I have more. There's a thing that goes hand in hand with the needle stuff, two things actually, moxibustion and cupping. I love the names of both of these barbaric torture treatments. You won't believe how depressing it was for me to discover that my MacBook Pro just left the word moxibustion alone. It didn't try to change it, like to masturbation or combustion. Steve Jobs must have told his crew, it's a word, damn it, leave it in there. Well, they did, and it is. Moxibustion is when your doctor makes a little pile of dried mugwort, puts it on your body, and as the name hints at, sets it on fire. But I can hear you now. Hey, dude, that can't be right. It would burn. It would leave a scar. And you nailed it. That's exactly what it does. I don't know what the hell mugwort is, but it sounds like the place that Potter lad went to school. You know, the place with a headmaster without a nose. I think that's the place anyway. Mugwort is only used for chronic disease, by the way. If you have an acute disease, say a fractured femur, then acupuncture is used. Cupping, which sounds like the setup for a scrotum joke, but alas is not. Cupping involves taking little glass cups and setting the inside of them on fire with alcohol and slapping a bunch of them onto the victim's body. Sometimes they poke holes in your skin first so that they'll bleed, presumably. And as soon as the vapors in the cup stop burning and consuming all the oxygen, the cup develops a, a ton of suction. And that means your scorched and bleeding flesh is sucked up into the cup, where presumably it stays until you remember the safe word or leap screaming from the window. 
If DARPA ever invents killer robots that destroy enemy combatants by giving them hundreds of fist-sized hickeys, you'll know where the idea came from. So that's all the weird and wonderful kinds of acupuncture that I've been able to find. But they all apparently do the same thing. They take your imbalanced chi and they balance it. That's how all your diseases get cured. And you're probably thinking, well, okay, that all sounds pretty reasonable so far. What does the evidence show? Ah, the evidence. In a nutshell, the evidence shows with a high degree of confidence that Chinese acupuncture researchers lie like Trump. Well, maybe not that much, but they do lie a lot. The Chinese acupuncture literature is embarrassing to look at. The papers are, for a start, 100% positive, showing in every single case that acupuncture works awesomely all the time. All the work is published by the same handful of acupuncture journals, and it's all reviewed by the same group of pseudoscientists that wrote the papers. The studies are of such uniformly poor quality that it's virtually impossible to extract any useful information from the trials. The experiments are poorly controlled, improperly blinded, and subject to astonishing bias. The evidence that originates in the US is of a slightly higher quality and includes some with negative findings. But these studies are also heavily biased and uniformly bereft of statistical significance. I suffered through the several Cochrane systematic reviews of these studies so that you wouldn't have to. I'm not even tempted to go into the minutiae of their findings, but I'll tell you that the evidence of efficacy is inconsistent at best and completely inconclusive in most cases. They found a few instances in which acupuncture might have some short-term effect on some pain symptoms, but they went on to point out that in each of these cases, the pain relief wasn't actually caused by the acupuncture itself. One of these systematic reviews concluded that even when some analgesic properties of the treatment were identified, they are always clinically insignificant, too tiny to make a difference to patients, and were equally likely just to be a consequence of bias. Many sham studies have been reported. In these studies, the acupuncture treatment is compared to the same treatment, but without using real needles, using toothpicks to touch the skin, for example. Unsurprisingly, the needle performed about as well as the toothpicks, and in some cases, the toothpicks were better. There's some data that may show that acupuncture has some prophylactic effect in preventing certain types of headaches, uh, episodic migraines, I think it is. Again, the data is weak, and the studies are confounded by so many variables outside the testing protocols that conclusions drawn from any of these experiments are basically meaningless. Interestingly, the Cochrane Reviews did list 71 specific conditions for which acupuncture has no efficacy. 
A few of these are worth mentioning, mainly because I find it stunning that any reasonable person thought that acupuncture could do anything for these conditions in the first place, like opioid alcohol and cocaine dependence, Alzheimer's disease, ADHD, and autism. Well, that shouldn't be surprising. We already know that only measles vaccination cures autism. But some bright spark over at the acupuncture research headquarters, which is probably a hollowed-out volcano with an underground helipad near Bermuda, thought we should be trying to fix cerebral hemorrhages with acupuncture. For the non-medically inclined listener, this is where an injury, a stroke, or an aneurysm causes bleeding into the brain which, as you may or may not know, is inside a definitely non-stretchy skull. It's a bad thing to have, and treatment may need to include drilling boreholes into the skull or removing a part of the skull so that the brain has somewhere to go and you can drain the blood. But trust me on this one. Balancing your yin with your yang should not be part of the treatment plan for patients who are this far up She Creek without a paddle. Whoever picked the short straw and was assigned to the Acupuncture for Erectile Dysfunction Research Group has my sympathy, though I'd be lying if I said I wasn't morbidly curious to know exactly when and where the needles were inserted in this uh, socially uncomfortable experiment. I'm disappointed that acupuncturists couldn't figure out how to use their sharp needles to treat an acute hordeolum. After all, that's, that's just a sty. One good jab with a big enough needle should drain it just fine. And at least then you'd have one disease that acupuncture actually works for. Somebody on that research team should have at least thought you know, maybe if we were sticking these pins in her eye and not in her back, we could help this. But apparently nobody did. Likewise, for in vitro fertilization, proper preparation of the needle, and I'll leave that to your imagination, and accurate placement of the prepared needle should at least have yielded a handful of fetuses, one would think. But their team was probably poking those needles into the poor mother's eye. The Cochrane Review also showed that acupuncture is ineffective for treating obesity, unless the needles are randomly inserted into all the food in the patient's fridge. I must say I felt somewhat vindicated to discover that the research conclusively confirmed what I'd been told all those years ago, that acupuncture does not work for smoking cessation. Some of this research was a complete and utter waste of time. For example, the experiments to test the efficacy of treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly what did the researcher think would happen when a complete stranger came at the PTSD patient with a fistful of glimmering needles and a reassuring smile. Acupuncture does absolutely nothing for whiplash, spinal stenosis, epilepsy, insomnia, myopia, deafness, shoulder pain, tennis elbow, uterine fibroids, polycystic ovaries, 
PMS, depression, gastroparesis, cardiac arrhythmias, carpal tunnel syndrome, Bell's palsy, dry eyes, allergies, asthma, twisted ankles, COPD, CAD, ADHD, IBS, CVA, or restless leg syndrome. If this seems to be the wrong way to conduct medical research, that's because it is. Medical research doesn't involve coming up with a new molecule and then feeding it to literally everyone in the hope that someone will get better from whatever's ailing them. This is the very definition of a remedy looking for a disease to cure. In real medicine, new drugs are found in one of two ways, by happy accident or through painstaking chemical engineering. In the first, the happy accident, something like this might happen. A researcher stumbles across an anecdotal report written by an Indonesian anthropologist who observed Dayak warriors treating their infected tattoos with a poultice made from the pulverized bark of Vatica pentandra mixed with ground watermelon lifesavers. He trots off to Kalimantan and collects a few of these poultices, which he takes home to his lab. There he discovers two things. Firstly, the bark contains a heretofore unknown chemical compound with broad-spectrum antibiotic properties. And secondly, that watermelon lifesavers are quite delicious. The new chemical will be subjected to a decade of clinical testing before finally gaining approval for use in humans. This is how a great many of the drugs we have today were actually discovered. The second way is that new drugs are created by building them in the lab, basically. In some cases, it may involve a relatively simple modification of an existing molecule, uh, the modification is not an accident, but made by design to improve the absorption or potency or duration of action, or to manipulate any of the hundreds of different properties of the original drug. In other settings, a new drug may be developed de novo based on our existing scientific understanding of the system in question and on our knowledge of biochemical engineering in general. One example may be the development of a new paralytic agent for use in anesthesia. We know almost everything there is to know about the skeletal muscle receptor mechanisms that we want to block, and from that knowledge, and a great deal more, a host of potentially promising molecules can be created and tested. It's a long and difficult process. It's astronomically expensive to do. The obvious difference between real medical research and acupuncture research is that in the former, we have a good understanding of the underlying system that our new therapies expected to modify. We understand the mechanisms involved in the disease and in the treatment, while in the latter, all we actually have is magic. Before we descend into the dark side of acupuncture, let's pause for a few minutes to consider the basics of risk-benefit analysis, the process by which we decide whether or not a given choice is worth it. There are many ways to approach risk-benefit analysis, but we're going to keep it basic for now. Consider these four scenarios related to some medical intervention or other. The first, 
The risk is low and the benefit is high. For example, you're thinking about whether or not to use a lubricating eye drop for your painfully dry eyes. The risks are minimal, not zero, but very low. The benefits, instant relief of the burning and the itching, are high. Most reasonable people would decide to take the treatment. In the second, let's switch places. The risks now are huge and the benefits are negligible. For example, we're considering a combination of immune system modulating drugs, drugs that can have devastating complications to treat a very mild arthritis that doesn't really affect our work or our way of life and could be managed with one Tylenol every few days. Again, most rational people would agree that the risks far outweigh the very limited benefit of this treatment, and we wouldn't do it. Third, it gets a bit tougher now. The risks are huge, but the potential benefits are also huge. For this example, we have a pancreatic cancer proven by biopsy, but with no definite evidence of lymph node involvement or distant metastases. We're also diabetic, have heart disease and COPD, a poor risk for having an ingrown toenail removed, honestly, let alone a pancreatic uodenectomy. You have a small but real chance for a cure with surgery, and you'll be dead in six to nine months without it. In cases such as this, a rational person's going to want to have a lot more information before making this hard decision. What's the complication rate? What will life be like after surgery? What's the mortality rate for the operation? How many of these operations has your surgeon done? And what do his numbers look like? The patient would need to balance all of this information. In case you're interested, in most of these cases, the disease is more advanced than expected based on the pre-op imaging results, and only a small percentage turn out to actually be good candidates for a curative operation. The operative risks are significant, but in skilled hands, most of them can be avoided, and life after the operation will be very much like it was before, though the diabetes may be a bit tougher to handle in this case. So as you can see, every new chunk of information gets dropped into the mix, and with each new piece, your risk evaluation may change. Fourth, and finally, let's take the case of a very low-risk procedure with a very low benefit. Our example could be getting laser treatment to remove a tiny tattoo that you got during a bachelorette party that you can't remember. It was 30 years ago anyway. The ink is on a part of your body that only you and your gynecologist are ever likely to see. The esthetician tells you that the treatment will be quick, easy, and painless, but warns you that it's almost certainly going to leave a pigmented scar. In other words, it'll look a lot like it does now. In this case, like with a pancreatic cancer, there's a relationship that's vaguely linear between how much risk you're willing to take to achieve a given benefit. At the low end of the spectrum, the tattoo, it's mostly a matter of assessing the benefit accurately, while at the other end, with the cancer, you want to understand the risks as fully as possible. 
So let's add one more consideration. What happens at the limits? What happens when the risks are 100%? You will die on the operating table. At this extreme of the continuum, the 100% chance of dying reduces the real potential benefit to zero. Or another way to put it would be that no amount of benefit can balance out the fact that you have a 100% chance of dying on the operating table. Going to the other end of the same continuum, where a treatment has a 0% chance of providing a benefit over that of a sham treatment or a placebo, any risk, no matter how trivial, becomes unacceptably high and pursuing a treatment becomes rationally indefensible. I hope that makes sense. No risk whatsoever is worth taking when the likelihood of you receiving a benefit is zero. But alas, human brains don't work very well when it comes to assessing risk in terms of probability. If they did, we'd all be looking at alternatives to driving cars around. To really understand how we assess risk, I strongly recommend you grab a copy of Daniel Kahneman's masterpiece, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. My daughter, let's call her Lauren, that's her name after all, gave me this book several years ago, and I have reread it so many times its pages are falling out. Read this book. It will do your brain a great service. Anyway, our brains prefer to use convenient shortcuts, generalizations, biases to assess relative risk. These shortcuts are called heuristics, and they can lead us to make some very irrational decisions. Take, for example, your sore ankle. The doctor saw it, said it was a sprain. It'll get better. You've iced it, elevated it, ibuprofened it, and prayed over it, and it still hurts like a bastard. Let's say you've listened to this podcast and generally agree that acupuncture sounds like a risky and useless alternative. Then you get a call from a friend, someone you would trust with your life, someone you respect, someone you love. And they tell you about acupuncture cured her sprained wrist two years ago. Suddenly, the facts and the numbers seem irrelevant and unconvincing. Your intuitive brain has just overridden your analytic brain, or as Kahneman might put it, you switched from thinking slow to thinking fast. This heuristic-based thinking is fast and automatic and implicit. It's effortless, associative, and emotion-laden. So as I explain my thinking as it relates to the risks of acupuncture, try to bear this in mind and try to avoid the temptation to let your own heuristics distort the evidence. As we've already determined, there is no reliable evidence that acupuncture performs better than a placebo for any disease or injury. It therefore follows that any risk is unacceptably high. And this would be true if the greatest risk of acupuncture was mild itching for five minutes after the procedure. But that is not the case. Acupuncture is associated with some really horrendous complications. I'll concede right up front that the procedure is mostly safe, and most complications are minor and temporary. 
And if there were any benefits whatsoever, the argument against acupuncture purely on the basis of risk would be significantly weaker. But as that's not the case, we're forced to consider any and every complication as an unnecessary risk. Between 2000 and 2009, acupuncture resulted in 95 serious complications and 5 deaths. During that period, the UK reportedly had 38 acupuncture-related infections and a stunning 42 cases of organ trauma. Let me sidetrack for just a moment. In doing my research, I came across several variations on a theme that seems to be ubiquitous among acupuncture researchers. The theme is that serious adverse events and complications that I'm getting ready to tell you about are not inherent to acupuncture and represent malpractice by acupuncturists. I take exception to this stupid claim for a number of reasons. These complications occurred during acupuncture, done by acupuncturists. Without the acupuncture, these adverse effects wouldn't have happened. The complications were directly attributable to the insertion of sharp needles into patients' bodies. This is the very definition of inherency. We don't get to arbitrarily toss out results that we don't like. When we study surgical wound infection rates, we can't ignore two-thirds of the infections because they resulted from bad technique. It's a stupid circular argument that has no place in the medical literature. The infection rate for a given procedure is just that. It's the number of complications as a factor of the number of procedures, and it's the same for acupuncture. This is the kind of intellectually dishonest, anti-scientific, manipulative behavior that I run into again and again looking through this pseudoscience research literature. Okay, let's move on to the complications that are, like it or not, inherent to acupuncture. Complications like these. Number one, mycobacteria infections. Mycobacteria is not the only causative agent in acupuncture infections, but it's by far the most common. And if the word mycobacterium sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's because this is the bacterial genus to which tuberculosis belongs. The infections usually result from unhygienic practices like reuse of needles or inadequately sterilizing the equipment and supplies. The rate of infection has been steadily increasing in recent years. Number two, spinal cord injury. Five cases of this in one recent review. To understand this bizarre injury, you need to bear in mind that the spinal cord is protected throughout its length by an interconnected series of thick, heavy bones, the vertebrae and they form a tube that the cord passes through. I've often sat in the corner of my operating room waiting patiently while an anesthesiologist with 20 years of experience tried repeatedly to insert an epidural catheter through a gap in these bones. That any civilized society would allow people with no medical training to poke needles anywhere near a spinal cord 
is beyond belief. How does that risk-benefit analysis look now? Upside? Well, nothing. Downside? Paralysis. Sure, I'll do it. Number three. There were four brain injuries. Seriously, on four separate occasions, an acupuncturist intent on balancing someone's non-existent chi was able to find a way to get a needle through the skull and into the brain. And don't forget the all-important twisting, flicking, wobbling of the magic brain needles that followed. Four lucky contestants were pithed to balance their life force. Number four, peripheral nerve injuries. There were four of these. On the very first day of medical school, I was introduced to a thin, elderly, dead gentleman who'd be my constant companion for the next several months. There were four of us sharing each cadaver. We spent several hours a day and many long nights hunched over our slowly decaying friend and meticulously dissecting out every major nerve, blood vessel, and lymphatic channel in his arms, legs, abdomen, chest, neck, and head. We learned where these structures started and where they ended. We learned the relative positions of one to another throughout their course. We did this so that we'd know where to find them in our living patients, and we'd know how to avoid them with our surgical instruments or our needles. Peripheral nerve injury, which can result in a permanent paralysis or agonizing neuromas, should be a very rare event in legitimate surgery. It should never, ever happen as a result of a pseudo-medicinal practice like acupuncture. Number five, another study, this one from 2013, found 31 vascular injuries, three of which resulted in dead patients. Most of them were inadvertent punctures and lacerations of arteries and veins, potentially serious injuries in their own right, leading to hemorrhage, bruising, vascular compromise, and in some cases, the formation of arteriovenous fistulas. But three of these vascular injuries deserve special mention. In the first two, the patient suffered a frequently deadly complication known as pericardial tamponade. In this condition, a laceration of the cardiac muscle or a puncture of the heart itself causes blood to rapidly accumulate in the dense fibrous sac around the heart, the pericardium. This bag doesn't stretch. It has an unyielding fibrous consistency. And as the bag fills with blood under pressure, the heart muscle is literally squashed inside. As the heart is flattened, there's no way for the blood returning to the heart to enter into the pump's chambers, so it can't be pumped forward into the aorta or into the pulmonary arteries. Unless the pericardium is immediately drained and the pressure relieved, and that can be done with a large bore needle or by cutting the sac open surgically from below, the patient will die. In what possible clinical scenario does an acupuncturist think it's a good idea to plunge a needle between the ribs or beneath the sternum and keep pushing 
until it punctures a heart. The third case is even more outrageous. This patient's vascular injury was reported to be an aortoduodenal fistula. The aorta is the largest artery in the body, coming directly off the left ventricle of the heart and running along the front of the spine before splitting into two major arteries that feed the pelvis and the legs. The duodenum is the first section of the small intestine, and food enters the duodenum from the stomach, and there it gets bathed in powerful enzymes from the adjacent pancreas and in bile from the gallbladder. This small patch of retroperitoneal real estate is one of the scariest places for new surgeons to visit. There are so many ways to stir up trouble back there. The last part of the duodenum runs across the aorta at a point a few inches below the tip of the sternum, but several inches deep inside the abdomen. To create a channel between the aorta and the duodenum, the acupuncture needle would need to be pushed into the patient's solar plexus and advanced basically until it hits the spinal column. This is from the front. Unless the needle in question was large or had sharpened edges, and some of these needles do have a triangular cross-section at the tip, or unless the needle was manipulated while it was in the aorta, an aortoduodenal fistula would be fairly unlikely to form. But with a large enough puncture, a connection between the pressurized blood vessel and the bowel can form. And given the high pressure gradient between the two, the passage between the two structures will enlarge as the blood gets sprayed into the intestine and the flow rapidly increases. The blood accumulates in the intestines where it acts like a powerful laxative. And before long, the patient starts to pass bloody stools. And this can be some of the most spectacular GI bleeding you'll ever see, with an almost continuous flow of bright red blood from the anus. Some of the blood may even be forced up into the stomach from where it may be expelled as copious bloody vomitus. As the intravascular volume drops precipitously, the patient quickly develops shock a sudden drop in the blood pressure that prevents blood from reaching the tissues. And without surgical intervention, the patient pretty rapidly bleeds to death from acupuncture. I could go on and on and on, but the theme is always the same. A pseudo-professional putting needles into places they don't belong. I'll let you use your imagination to explain how the following reported complications came about. Retinal puncture, traumatic cataracts, pneumothorax, subarachnoid hemorrhage, stroke. There are more. Pyoderma gangrenosum, epithelioid granuloma, hepatitis, pseudolymphoma, argyria, pancytopenia, and eruptive lichen planus from acupuncture. You could say, sure, but these don't sound any worse than the possible complications from major surgery or chemotherapy or any other number of Western medical interventions. And you would be right. But the difference should be obvious by now. Each of these mainstream interventions may have actual benefit for the patient. If you remain unconvinced, try a thought experiment. 
Imagine you have just killed a patient, given her a fatal pericardial tamponade with one of your needles. You're in the waiting room facing her husband and her three young children. What are you going to say to justify her death? If you look through the English language literature, such as it is on the subject of acupuncture, you'll come across another recurring theme. Proponents of the practice will say, okay, there are some potentially deadly complications, but they can all be mitigated by good training. Well, once again, I'm going to take exception to this misleading and disingenuous garbage. A crucial element of any medical healthcare training is the ongoing assessment of the trainee's progress. Written and oral examinations provide a fairly objective measure of progress, at least of knowledge retention, but they're really only a proxy for the day-to-day assessment of actual performance. In medicine, the junior doctor is under the constant assessment by more senior practitioners, and we rely heavily on objective data to make that assessment too. If an intern is managing a group of diabetic patients and every one of them still have consistently elevated hemoglobin A1C levels after four months of medical treatment, and this wouldn't actually happen, of course, because the intern would be working under a more senior resident, but it makes the point, the trainer would then have some objective evidence that the trainee might be doing something wrong. Not always, there could be other explanations, but bear with me. This is how we know when a young doctor is learning. The patients are objectively improving. And this is where the concept of the adequately trained acupuncturist falls apart. What objective measures can you show to document that the trainee acupuncturist is doing it right? The patients get better? No, that's a subjective measure. It's not completely useless, but it isn't reliable or reproducible either. Acupuncture training is a nonsense term. It's an internal contradiction. And don't be tempted to think that the goal of acupuncture training is to turn out acupuncturists who are less likely to stab patients in the heart. If that were the goal of training, there's a much more effective way to accomplish the same heart protection, and that is don't do acupuncture. Before we wrap this up and I go check my blood pressure, we need to consider one other acupuncture dynamic. It's something we seem to come back to almost every week, one way or the other. What is behind America's love affair with woo and magic and fantasy? When did we start turning our backs on science, education, reality? And why is this trend accelerating? One interesting observation that illustrates my point is that over the last few decades, Eastern acupuncturists, primarily Chinese acupuncturists, have largely abandoned all the qi and yin and yang and meridian guff, and they just get right to business with the needle jabbing. Yet here in America, Acupuncture is putting more and more emphasis on these mysterious, magical, and supernatural components of acupuncture. Why is that? If we listen to Kurt Anderson, the author of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, 
is probably rooted in the country's self-proclaimed exceptionalism or the delusional belief in a manifest destiny. But there's much more to it than that. The 60s saw a stunning upswing in magical thinking in almost every segment of our society, in medicine, politics, art, music, you name it. Another factor was the long peace, which Anderson defined as the decades during which regular Americans were largely disconnected from conflict. Sure, we were at war with someone the whole time, but unless we lost a child in combat, most of us were kept insulated from all those harsh realities. Conflict was something that happened someplace else. You could watch the news, but what you saw wasn't about you, and you could always turn it off. As Anderson puts it, we've turned everything into show business. Television, the internet, movies have blurred the line between news and entertainment, between truth and fiction. Even religion's been caught up in the rising tide, with the last half century seeing dozens of new fabulous supernatural Protestant churches emerging all over the country. Gun rights activists, already pathological individualists, have become so convinced of their own mythical hero status that they appear to have lost the ability to comprehend data. Or have they? Is our ability to think rationally really disappearing? Have we lost the ability to separate fact from fiction? Or do we just not give a damn about the truth? I believe it's the latter. As a country, we've become conditioned to believe anything and everything we're told. The truth is really irrelevant just as long as we're entertained. One of the most breathtaking rejections of reality in favor of fantasy was the financial crisis of 2008. The root cause of the collapse was the belief, contrary to every known fact about markets, that housing prices would continue to rise forever. And the certainty that people would be able to pay back mortgage loans that they demonstrably could not afford. This was pure fantasy. So whether we actually can't separate magic from reality, or if we just don't care about the difference, doesn't really matter. Either way, America's arms are wide open to flat earthers, vaginal jade egg stuffers, anti-vaxxers, homeopaths, trumps, and acupuncturists. We shouldn't be the least bit surprised. One last thought to leave you with. In doing my research for this episode, I went looking for acupuncturists to talk to, and there was an alarming number of them to choose from. While there were quite a few dedicated traditional Chinese medicine practices, some quite large and with many practitioners, I was disturbed to see how many chiropractors and physical therapists have started offering these services. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the chiropractors, this should be right up their alley, but physical therapists? Most physical therapy patients are referred to physical therapy by physicians, and the implication is that the referring doctors must tacitly approve of it being part of their therapy. They, the referring doctors, should know better. 
But what bothered me the most was how many residency-trained primary care physicians have started offering acupuncture in their clinics. It's disheartening to think that American-trained doctors are using this unproven, ineffective, potentially dangerous intervention as a way to scam cash from gullible patients. That's bad enough. But the idea that today's physicians actually believe that their patients would benefit from a balanced chi, well, that's just terrifying. Acupuncture has no legitimate role in modern healthcare. There is no high-quality evidence that effectively treats any condition or alleviates any symptom more effectively than a sham procedure or a placebo. Accordingly, its risks, while uncommon, are absolutely unacceptable. The popularity of acupuncture is just one more symptom of a much larger underlying problem. And that's the growing unreality of life in America. Thanks for listening. Good day.